Would you, uh, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as we continue our series looking at the way of Jesus. We are looking at 1 Corinthians 9 this morning. You can find 1 Corinthians 9 if you're looking in one of the blue uh, church Bibles that's on the ground near you. That's on page 957. And uh, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we give our attention to God's word this morning. 1 Corinthians 9, I'm starting at verse 19. The Apostle Paul writes these words, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Oh God, I feel this morning just the incredible high calling of these words and um, sense my own inadequacy um, to even talk about them, let alone live them out. And so, God, I pray for your help this morning. I pray that your spirit would be with us. God, all I, all I have is words, but Holy Spirit, you have the power to change our hearts. And so would you use my words, um, would you use your word this morning to form Jesus in us, we pray in his name, amen. You may be seated, please. What does a beautiful life look like? What's a life worth living? What does it look like? I... Um, there's what I think of, what I like to think of as the backyard dream. What will it look like when I finally get to the point in life where it feels like all of our work, all of our effort has paid off? Um, I like to think of that as the backyard dream. You know, maybe it's going to take years to get there. Maybe it's not until, um, I don't know, mid-50s. It feels like a long way off still to me. Some of you, maybe not quite so much. Maybe you're thinking maybe it's in the 60s, 70s, maybe it's 80s. But the backyard dream looks like this. It looks like walking out your back door onto your back patio and kind of casually surveying your domain. And all is right with the world. You have a beautiful landscaped backyard. Maybe there are some grand grandchildren that are quietly playing together, jumping on the trampoline, the barbecues warming up, and there's just this deep sense that this is what I've worked for all my life. Maybe life has had its challenges, but we've persevered and we've worked hard, and maybe it's still a ways away, but a time is coming when things will finally calm down and we can just enjoy the backyard dream. You know, for some of us in Southern California, maybe just having a backyard is the dream. <laughs> is that what a beautiful life looks like? A life where we 
make sacrifices now in order to enjoy a life of ease and comfort at some point in the future. Is that what a beautiful life looks like? The other day I was reminded of a story I'd actually heard a few years ago about a couple named Bob and Sharon Drew. Uh, Bob and Sharon Drews were a Navy couple. Bob was in the Navy, he was career Navy, and in 1993 he retired from the Navy after, uh, after you know, serving his whole career in the Navy and then uh, got a job in the corporate world, um, worked for several years for a major corporation until he retired again, and uh, was presented with an opportunity. You know, in the Navy, they had moved around a lot. They had uh, done a few uh, stints overseas, including some time in Japan, and during their time in Japan, Bob and Sharon Drews fell in love with, with the people of Japan. I'm just going to warn you. I'm going to be a mess today. <laughs> and so Bob and Sharon Drews, with their love for Japan, Bob having retired for the second time, were presented with an opportunity to uh, serve with our denomination's missions agency, Mission to the World, and go spend three years in Tokyo. And when that opportunity presented itself, of course, they leapt at the chance. And so for three years post-career, they lived in Tokyo, Sharon Drews, looking forward to their term being up so that she could finally move home and enjoy time with her six grandchildren. And so for three years, the Drews, <laughs> the Drews served in a support role coming alongside uh, Japanese Christians, pastors, and other ministry leaders, mentoring and supporting them, working in the background to free them up to minister to their own people. And after three years, uh, Bob and Sharon were eager to move back to the States to spend time with their grandchildren. And in their final couple days in Tokyo, Bob Drews went for a walk with a missionary friend. And uh, I think they were, uh, they were actually out in Tokyo Harbor and they sat down on a bench where they had a view back of the city. And they sat on that bench and they talked together about the families and the lives that they had seen impacted by the gospel. And, um, and as they sat there, a group of school children walked past. And Bob Drews said, we can't go back, can we? We have to stay here. And so Bob went back to their little apartment and he walked in the front door and his wife Sharon took one look at him and caught the glint in his eye. And she said, oh no. <laughs> And um, Sharon said, Bob, you can stay here, but I'm going back without you. I'm going back to my grandkids. And then she softened and she said, okay, I'll go sit on this bench where God spoke to you. And so they went back and sat down on that bench and it wasn't five minutes until Sharon Drews looked at her husband and said, we have to stay here. We have to stay for any number of years. Do you know why? Because my six grandchildren back home, they all have Christian parents and Christian schools and Christian churches and Christian community. And here we are in this city and how many, 39 million people I think live in Tokyo and she said that not one of these children has that. We can't go back where exactly where God would have us serve him. Is that a beautiful life? 
You know in your heart that a life of beauty is not a life dedicated to the pursuit of your own comfort and desire. You know in your heart that a life of beauty is not a life where we try to fill ourselves, but a life of sacrifice, giving away, giving away our own desires for the sake of something greater. A life of beauty and adventure, meaning and purpose is not a life where we are enslaved to comfort, but a life defined by God and his kingdom. Friends, this is what the way of Jesus looks like. This is the way of Jesus. So let me ask you this. What is the trajectory, and I'm talking best case scenario here, what is the trajectory of your life? Are you sacrificing time for uh, career aiming at your own version of the backyard dream, or is the grand narrative of your life arcing towards a different climax? We're in this series talking about what it means to follow Jesus in the world that we live in, and I have this sneaking suspicion that much of the time, many of us think that the way of Jesus, following Jesus in this world, is a bummer. I think that for many Christians, we have this idea that I have Jesus like in my back pocket. I have Jesus as the backstop of my life, and at the end of the day, or maybe at the end of my life, we are really and truly trusting ourselves to Jesus. But when it comes to living a life that we would look back at, at our, in our 60s or 70s or 80s and say this was a life worth living I mean, statistically, 90% of us just don't think Jesus is going to be the one to get us there. And so what we're doing in this series is we are looking at the other 10%. The other 10%, the resilient disciples, those living with faith uh, in Jesus, those living with hope, those living with realism, those who are reaching the end of their lives and saying, this was more than I could have ever hoped for those who are thriving in the midst of a culture that is pressing in on them, and yet they are thriving and we're saying, what are these people doing? What are these people doing that allows you to get to your 60s, 70s, beyond, and say, this is exactly where we need to be? And so we've looked over the last several weeks at characteristics of resilient disciples, and this morning we're looking at the fourth characteristic of a resilient disciple, and it's this, in a world where self-centeredness has become a virtue and entitlement is the norm. Resilient disciples have embraced this characteristic, this conviction. They say, my life is a gift to the world. The purpose of my life is to be a gift to the world, friends. That's what a life of beauty looks like, a life of true freedom, meaning, significance, is a life where we give ourselves away to others. And so I want you to look with me at this passage because what Paul is talking about is what freedom really looks like. And so the first thing I want you to see with me here is this. The gospel brings true freedom. The gospel brings true freedom. Listen, we live in a culture that is obsessed with a misunderstanding of what freedom is. We are obsessed with freedom. And yet our obsession with freedom is a misunderstanding of what freedom truly is because the secular worldview says that freedom is the ability to do whatever you want. 
And you know what? We live in this highly politicized, uh, increasingly divided culture where we think that right and left are opposed to one another, but friends, the truth is, right and left have agreed that freedom is the ability to do whatever you want. And the disagreement between right and left is that the left thinks the best way to ensure personal freedom is to strip down any structures of uh, value or authority that would limit your freedom to do whatever the heck you want. And on the right, the right says that the best way to ensure individual liberty and freedom is through uh, personal responsibility and free markets. They both agree that we should be free to do whatever we want. But listen again to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. What in the world? Is that what freedom looks like? What, in the, what, what is this guy thinking? Friends, if you are ever going to understand what the Bible is all about, you have to understand this. And, oh gosh, I'm taking my life in my own hands because this is so deeply un-American. Freedom in the Bible is not freedom to do whatever you want. Freedom in the Bible is freedom to become the person God has created you to be. The freedom to be your true self. The person that God intended you to be. Look at this passage with me. It's implicit in what Paul says in verses 20 and 21. That true freedom comes not from freedom to do whatever you want, but it comes from freedom. True freedom is freedom from what? Freedom from the the law of God. True freedom is freedom from God's law. Now, what in the world does that mean? Okay, the law of God is God's perfect and just standard. Uh, God's perfect will revealed for, for, for human beings. God's law is the creator saying, I know you and I know how you best operate. And so I'm not letting, leaving you to figure it out on your own, but I'm telling you this is what's good for you. The law of God... Um, you know, summarized in the Ten Commandments, the law of God. Uh, Jesus, when he was asked, summarized the, the law of God as uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The law of God reveals God's perfect standard for my life and your life. And what the Bible tells us is that once sin has entered into the world through Adam and Eve, and once sin enters into each of our own lives as we, as we are born incapable of keeping God's law, that the law of God becomes a weight, a burden. Have you ever um, had the experience where somebody sits down and shares with you a list of things that you could do to improve, and they, they mean well, they really do, they're trying to help, and yet they say, you know, here's eight things that you did wrong in the last month, and you're like, Yeah, that's only a fraction. (laughs) If you only knew the weight, the weight of the law, it is no longer possible for us to obey God's law perfectly. And so the purpose of the law is to show us how much we need someone to save us. How much we need someone to save us. Now Paul is saying here that by nature there are two kinds of people. 
when he talks about Jews and, and, and those who are not under the law, what he, what he's, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles in his context, but generally, in a general sense, what he's saying is, by nature, there are two kinds of people. There are people who are trying really hard to obey God's law and think we're doing it, and there are people who are like, Psh, God's law, that's, what is this, 1950? You know, people who have given up trying or who ignore or dismiss God's law. And yet, for both sorts of people, there is this residual sense of guilt, and so we try to justify ourselves. It's fascinating how often uh, I have a conversation with somebody who says something like, you know, I'm not perfect, but you know, I'm a good person. And and they'll go on to share details. I I always think this is a crazy thing to say because somebody will sit and tell you why the the thing that they do that's bad is a reason why they're not really that bad. (laughs) It, It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Why do we do that? Because whatever we say, we carry the guilt of not living up to who we know that we should be. And so, friends, here's the good news. The gospel is that God himself perfectly obeyed the law. In Christ... God comes down, not, not just as the law giver, but as the law fulfiller. In Jesus, he takes on human flesh and he comes and he fulfills perfectly the law of God. And then as Jesus goes to the cross, what is he doing? He's hanging on the cross and he is paying my penalty and your penalty for disobeying the law of God. And he's exchanging places with us, so he's paying my debt and your debt, and he's giving us in exchange his record And so what that means is this, if you are in Christ, you are free from God's law. Though you have broken God's law, the price has been paid. Though you cannot keep the law of God, Jesus kept it for you. And so you are free. You are not under the law of God. That is good news, friends. Hallelujah. The gospel is freedom from guilt, freedom from the law of sin and death, as Paul says in Romans 8. Okay, so I have to kind of pause here and say, are you, are you tracking with me? Freedom, in the biblical sense, is freedom from God's law. Because this is important. The gospel sets us free from God's law um, as a way to earn God's favor. So the question for us then becomes, how do we live? If I'm no longer under God's law as a way to earn God's favor, then should I just do whatever the heck I want? Does it matter how I live my life? And most of us, I think on the surface of of it, would say, if you don't have to obey God's law, then why bother? And that makes sense until you think about it for like half a second because if you're no longer obligated to keep the Ten Commandments because Jesus kept them for you, then, uh, so just the Sixth Commandment. So if I no longer earn God's favor by not murdering anyone, should I therefore become a murderer? Like, that would be insane, right? That would be completely illogical. I'm free in Christ from needing to earn God's favor through obedience. I'm free in Christ from the guilt of my failure. I'm free from the power of sin and death, and therefore I am free to become the person that God created me to be. Freedom in Christ means I'm free to fail. I don't have to obey God's law, but I'm also free to become the person God has created me to be by obeying him. That's what true freedom looks like. 
That's gospel freedom. And so the second thing you have to see in this passage is what freedom is for. What is our freedom for if we are free in Christ from the law of God? What is that freedom for? So come back with me to Paul's words in verse 19. He says, freedom in Christ doesn't lead to a life of like self-indulgence or wanton excess. Paul says, because I am free in Christ, I've built my life around God's mission. My life is a gift to others. Because I am free in Christ, I give my life away to others. And he talks about these two kinds of people. He, he, he talks about two kinds of people that he has built his life around. He has built his life around those who are still trying to earn their place in God's good graces through their obedience. And he's built his life around those who have long since given up trying to earn God's favor. These two polar opposite camps, Paul's saying, I have built my life around trying to win them for Christ. Both the religious and the irreligious need, need Jesus, Paul says. And he says, because I'm free, what I do is I leverage all that I am, all my resources, all my experience, that I might in some ways win some. That I might, because I'm free in Christ, I might actually be a part of God's plan to see others experience the freedom that Jesus has won them. I'm going to use my freedom to help others find freedom. Senator John McCain died about a year and a half ago. Uh, John McCain was well known. I think he served in the United States Senate for about 30 years, but he's, he's well known for having been a POW during the Vietnam War. And um, John McCain was on a... Uh, on a, on a patrol on October 26, 1967, as a, um, as a pilot in the U.S. Navy when his Skyhawk dive bomber was shot down over Hanoi. And he was um, captured by the North Vietnamese and imprisoned in the Hanoi Hilton for five and a half years. John McCain had followed both his father and his grandfather into the Navy, uh, both his grandfather and father had been four-star admirals. And less than a year into his captivity, John McCain's father uh, was promoted to become the commander of U.S. forces in the Pacific Fleet. And when that happened, um, in order to curry favor, the North Vietnamese saw an opportunity for leverage by offering the younger John McCain release from captivity. But John McCain refused. He refused sticking to the POW code of conduct that said that troops must be released in the order that they were captured. That as one of the newer captives, he could not leapfrog over those who had been there long before him. And so... He uh, refused to be released. And uh, his refusal to be released drew the ire of his captors who uh, treated him all the more severely. He spent two years in solitary confinement where he says that he uh, was broken and attempted to commit suicide twice.
so, I mean, he's no longer with us. But whether you agree with John McCain politically or not, doesn't knowing that about him shape everything uh, about the way you look at him? A man who would refuse to allow his uh, freedom to be used for his own betterment. Isn't that a beautiful life? A life of glory is a life that is transformed through sacrifice. John McCain could have been free, but he refused to use his freedom for personal gain, and that's what true greatness looks like. Bob and Sharon Drews were free to leave Japan. They were free to enjoy their retirement, free to spend time with their grandkids, and they were free to stay to serve the Japanese people. They didn't have to, but they stayed in order that they might win some to Christ, as Paul says. Win some, this phrase, means helping people meet Jesus. Paul says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Friends, let me ask you, have you ever had the experience of seeing the gospel take hold of somebody's life? You haven't lived until you've seen somebody come alive in Christ for the first time. <laughs> I'm gonna get through this, I swear. I've seen college students in my own living room where it's like somebody reached in their soul and turned on the light switch. I've seen that happen in many of you, I think, in the last couple years too. You haven't lived until you've been a part of somebody putting their trust in Jesus. Friends, this is why we're here this is why Resurrection OC is here. Now, you might be thinking, that sounds inspiring. You're clearly moved by it. <laughs> but I don't really know anybody that wants to meet Jesus. So I don't really know what to do. Um, but see, I think the problem is that we think the problem, let me say that differently. Too many problems in that sentence. <laughs> We think the problem is that there's nobody looking for Jesus. Jesus doesn't agree. Jesus said this, Matthew 9, Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus is not saying that there are not that many people that need him. He's saying there's the harvest is ripe, the laborers are few. So pray that God would send out laborers. Interesting thing in Matthew 9, he says that. In Matthew 10, the next thing he does is he sends out those 12 disciples to go usher people into the kingdom. And he says pray, and then he immediately makes them the answer to their own prayers. Friends, it is not the case that very few people need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. Uh, the reality, though, is that, I mean, it does happen every once in a while that somebody walks into the front door of a, of a church and just says, I'm just overcome and I need Jesus, and will you help me find him? Every once in a while that happens. Uh, 
usually it's a little bit more muddled because friends are, are, are friends and loved ones who don't yet know Christ are looking for anything and everything to set them free from the burden of God's law, and they don't have any idea what it is. And so what Paul instructs us to pray for is not these like golden opportunities to explain the gospel to somebody, where you're sitting on an airplane and the person next to you says, please tell me about Jesus before we crash. <laughs> That's great if it happens. But Paul's saying pray for opportunities Pray for open doors. I mean, this is, this is the, the, the verse that we put on these cards that we handled, handed out a moment ago. First, uh, Colossians chapter 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word so that we might declare the mystery of Christ. Pray for opportunities. And then pray for the courage to walk through the doors when they open. Um, you may or may not know, my wife uh, uh, hosts a podcast, and this week she got a, she had a, a, a podcast interview where she was talking with, with somebody about just the problem of loneliness in our, in our culture, in our world, and, um, and um, a friend was listening to her podcast, a friend, a neighbor who lives in the area uh, texted Ashley and said that she's been listening to her podcast and, and she said, I'm realizing how lonely I am. I'm realizing that I have many friend groups but I seem to be on the fringe in most of them. This is a person whose life from all external appearances seems to be firing on all cylinders. She said to Ashley, I think maybe that's why I got a puppy because I'm lonely. I said to Ashley, that's a person who just opened the door are we going to walk through it? Are we going to walk through it? See, when we say, I don't really know anyone looking for Jesus, I think what we're saying is, okay, God, I'm willing. If you just drop someone in my lap, I'll tell them about Jesus, but I don't want to look stupid in front of my friends. Friends, I want to invite you to join the long line of Christians that look stupid for the sake of Jesus. <laughs> Eric Mason's a pastor in Philadelphia. Um, he says this, your life has to be built around God's mission. If your life is not built around God's mission, you are out of the will of God. Mature Christians, this is fascinating. We so often think of a mature Christian as somebody who can quote Bible verses, who knows a lot of theology. Eric Mason says mature Christians are willing to minister outside of their comfort zones. You know what? You need to be a resilient disciple. You need to be willing to walk into a potentially awkward conversation and pray like crazy <laughs> that Jesus is with you when that comes. I could tell many stories of awkward conversations. <laughs> friends, all around us, we have friends, coworkers, loved ones who are convinced that they have God on their side or they have given up hope of trying to please him. We have found freedom in Christ. Resilient disciples are people who are using their freedom for the sake of others. I mean, statistically, that is true. When the Barna Group surveyed people who are living as resilient disciples, they said this, nine out of 10 resilient disciples say, I want, to, I want others to see Jesus reflected in me through words and actions. Only half of cultural Christians 
They said this, a major part of my life is to serve others, two-thirds of resilient disciples versus one-third of cultural Christians. And yet, and yet, there's a problem because most resilient disciples say, but I don't really know how to do this. Only um, 49%, less than half, say I feel prepared to have difficult conversations with others. Only one-third say, I'm inspired to live as a missionary by the example of someone else. Think about that. There's somebody else that I know in my life who inspires me to live this missionary life. Resilient disciples are saying, I have the conviction that this is what God has called me to be, but I don't see anybody setting an example of how to do this. So the question then becomes how. How? How do we win some? And folks, I want to tell you, that the answer here is hospitality. The answer is through the ancient Christian vocation of hospitality. It is a mark of maturity for God's people. A um, couple Bible verses here. First Timothy chapter 3 says, Therefore an elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. An elder, somebody who would lead God's people a mature person must be hospitable. Hebrews 13 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Harkening back to uh, Abraham, uh, Abram, giving shelter to uh, angels. Several of Jesus' parables show us that our practice of hospitality will be the on-ramp for people into the kingdom of God. And I want to suggest that if you're thinking, but I, I mean, I guess I'd be happy to tell people about Jesus, but I don't really know what I would say. The place to start is not by getting a sign and yelling at people on the street corner or something like that. The place to start is hospitality. Hospitality is making room for outsiders by leveraging the gifts God has given you for the sake of his kingdom using your resources to serve others in the name of Jesus. Friends, hospitality is not entertaining. Hospitality is not Martha Stewart. Hospitality is not impressing your friends with, you know, an elaborate display of your beautiful kitchen and cooking skills. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not necessarily hospitality. Nor is hospitality the same as fellowship. This is important. Hospitality is not hosting a community group in your house. Hospitality is not having, you know, like looking at the other people in church and saying, you know, why don't you come over for dinner? That's fellowship. That's great. That's wonderful. We need to do, we, we need fellowship. It's not the same as hospitality. Hospitality is opening our homes to those who are far from Christ, building relationships, sharing our lives, and answering questions when they inevitably come up. Now, I know that we all have a reason for why this won't work. I'm too old or I'm too young. I have a young child or I don't have any children. I have a roommate. I live with my parents. I'm an introvert. Work is busy. I'm not a good cook. Gosh, there's all kinds of ways to be creative. Um, you can go to Costco. You can buy a lasagna. You can stick it in the oven before people come over. 
take five minutes to clean up the dirty laundry that people can see, wipe down anything that's sticky. Your neighbors would be thrilled if you came over and said, hey, I'm sorry, I know we've been waving at each other for three years. I'm not sure if I can remember your name. Would you like to come over for dinner next week? They're gonna say, you know, I've kind of been thinking the same thing. Thanks for saying something. Last Tuesday, I, I started this group called Think and Drink. Um, at this pub in San Juan. You, you're welcome to come, but you have to bring a friend. I mean, for you, anybody else can come, but you, you can come, but you have to bring a friend. Um, last week, we had a small group. I, I, there's only a couple other guys there. I, uh, the question that I threw out for discussion was this, can anything good come out of suffering? And I sit down and, then, and start talking with a couple guys that showed up. And um, in the first five minutes, a couple things happened. First of all, they both let me know that they're atheists. So I'm thinking like, okay, like game on, right? And then one of them tells me that his wife is home dying of stage four cancer. I thought, gosh, all of my theoretical answers about how God is gonna use suffering are so callous in light of that reality. And so I just waited because the last thing I want them to think is that this group is like a bait and switch. <laughs> and so I just talked or asked questions and didn't, didn't say anything until, uh, until one of the guys said, um, said, Bryce, what do you think about, about suffering? Can anything good come out of suffering? And um, he said, you're a religious person, right? I said, well, I'm a Christian. I can't speak for all religions. I, I, I can speak as a Christian. And I, and I, I told him that, um, you know, I live in Ladera Ranch, and Ladera Ranch is a place that was built to insulate people against suffering to remove it from our lives, and the reality is that often it makes people very petty. And they all began to kind of nod, and, and I said, so if you agree with that, then you have to agree that God can do something with suffering, can't he? And yet the, um, the incredible thing about Christianity is that of all world religions, Christianity is the only religion that says we have a God who suffers. We have a God who doesn't hover above our circumstances, but actually suffers with us. And in Christ, he takes on flesh and suffers humiliation and death on our behalf. <laughs> I just put a thing on meetup.com and I got to explain the gospel to two atheists. It's just a willingness to walk into potentially awkward situations. There's nothing really incredible about, about, about that. It's just finding ways to practice hospitality. I can help you. I'd be happy to sit down with you and talk about what this looks like in your life. Are you willing to walk into a potentially awkward situation and trust that God is with you? Now, I know that many of us are thinking, Pastor, that sounds great in theory, but you have to understand that people are tired. People are tired in this world. We're so busy. Ain't nobody got time for that. We can't expect people are actually gonna do any of this, and I hear you, and friends, that's why I'm telling you that this series about following the way of Jesus is about a different way of living. The way of Jesus is not just do what everyone else is doing, but keep Jesus in your back pocket. It's an entirely different way of living. It's a system, and so put up this, uh, this other slide. We've been talking about this. What does resilience look like? 
And really, there, there's five characteristics. Resilient disciples experience the presence of God through scripture and prayer. Resilient disciples have an identity that is shaped by the gospel. Resilient disciples live their life in the context of the community of the church. And those first three that we've looked at over the last three weeks are like, these are the indicatives. These are the things that are true of you if you are in Christ. And then these last two are the outflow. My life is a gift to the world and I am my brother's keeper. I live my life uh, for the sake of others and I pursue people with intentionality. And these only work if they all go together. If you put up the next slide, this is my art project that I uh, created for you. This is a water tank, okay? The first three characteristics are inputs. If God is pouring his life into you, if you are spending time in God's presence in scripture and in prayer, then your tank is overflowing. And you cannot drain that through any amount of following God on his mission. But if you are not experiencing the presence of God, then that well is going to run dry very quickly. This is, an entire, this is an entire complete way of life. If you're trying to engage in God's mission without God's presence, you will be exhausted very quickly. Trust me, I have learned that the hard way. <laughs> Probably for the first three years planting this church, I was trying to muster the energy to do this on my own. And so if you feel like your life is exhausting, then come back to scripture and prayer. Come back to the presence of God. When you get to the point where you are exhausted, that means that the system of your life is failing. So you need to change the system. You need another input. Hitting the wall, trying to white-knuckle it out, drove me back to the presence of God. Come back to Jesus who invites you, saying, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. The way of Jesus is utterly different than the world's way of living. It's not pursuing worldly success with Jesus in my back pocket. It's a life of beauty and adventure. It's using our freedom for Christ to serve others. When I was in seventh grade, I went with some friends to this really cheesy youth conference at the Anaheim Convention Center called This Side Up. And I don't remember anything about what was said except late in the evening, some speaker stood up before like 5,000 teenagers and said, I want to invite you to follow Jesus no matter where he calls you. And everybody in my row got up and went forward, and so I didn't want to sit there by myself. And I went forward with these people and said, wherever you go, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. As a shy, awkward, well, as a seventh grader, <laughs> I had no idea what that would mean. Friends, it has been a life worth living. And I'm not even 40 yet. I haven't mentioned that in a week. <laughs> but Jesus has never failed me, not even once. How about you? Have you found freedom in the gospel? Are you using your gospel freedom for the sake of others? Let me, let me finish with this. I mean, could you imagine what would happen if, as a small church, we embrace the conviction that, you know, individually, as families, as couples, once a month, we're going to invite somebody into our home for the sake of just making room, caring for somebody? 
what might God do for, through us if that was to become our practice? You know, uh, one of the things that happens when you build your life around the wishes and whims of other people is that it begins to shape your life. And one of the uh, things that Ashley and I have often had in the back of our minds as we have followed Jesus through these various stages of, of, of following him wherever he leads is, is we always kind of wonder, what, what's this going to mean for our kids? And sometimes it, it, it feels like uh, this is something that God has called Ashley and I to, and our kids are maybe just along for the ride. And we wonder, um, what's going to happen with our kids? Many of us are concerned about our kids and we want to protect them, but we see kids and people of all ages becoming increasingly fickle and living with a sense of entitlement, and we wonder, how are we going to protect our children from becoming like that? And one of the things that I'm coming to discover is that my kids aren't just along for the ride anymore, but they are actually embracing <laughs> the mission that God has called our family into. It was incredible. Uh, in December, we asked you to submit impossible prayer requests. Jason and I, we meet every Wednesday and we pray through these on your behalf. But my oldest two kids are both praying. Their impossible prayer request was that God would bring more people to himself through the ministry of our church. My kids are taking ownership of this mission. That's beautiful. Friends, God loves you. He loves you. He, he loves you so much that he gives you his law as a perfect standard. When we utterly failed to obey it, he took on flesh to fulfill it for us. He pays the price that we owe for our failure to keep his law. And he gives us his perfect record of righteousness. He invites us to follow him in his mission in the world. This is a life of beauty. Are you living that kind of life? Let's pray. Oh God, would you, would you take our lives and make them a gift to others? None of us has the willpower to do this on our own. But Holy Spirit, you are alive and active. You are working through your word and through your church, and I pray, oh God, that you would form Jesus more fully in us. Would you fill our cups to overflowing, that we might give your life away to others, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.